Chinese Romans, some famous lines of poetry, Crassus's secrets to building an imperial fortune, the fate of Publius Crassus's wife, and more, all in this wrap-up episode. Now, his biographer, Plutarch, is not shy about criticizing Crassus, but one of Plutarch's great qualities is his fairness in acknowledging the strengths and virtues of people he disapproves of. And so, you know, the typical thing that an off-the-shelf ancient moralist might say about a super-rich guy would be, oh, he loved money more than the grander and more admirable things in life. But Plutarch doesn't say that. He says, basically, for all that you could criticize about Crassus, this was not one of them. Crassus, after all, contended for the prize in politics with some of the greatest men in history, Caesar and Pompey. And Plutarch says, quote, in the supreme struggles of a political career, one must not adopt a course which awakens no envy, but instead one which dazzles men, throwing envy into the shade by the greatness of one's power. End quote. And I love that. In this passage, Plutarch is in the process of comparing Crassus with his Greek counterpart, who is the wealthy Nicias of Athens. Nicias was known for his timidity, his hesitancy to attract negative PR by being too ambitious in Athenian politics or seeming too ambitious. But Plutarch is saying, well, you know, you can't be afraid to awaken envy if you want to do great things. And this goes for things outside of the political sphere, of course. You know, the haters are going to come no matter what you do if you do something great. Nicias let them keep him up at night and trip him up in his actions. But Crassus laughed at them, and then he rented them houses and lent them money. Now, before we get to the lessons and the sources and the aftermath of the Battle of Cari, a quick announcement. After the amazing success of the first Cost of Glory men's retreat this summer, Eric and I are running it again in July 2024. It was really one of the most incredible and unique things I've ever done, and I'm very excited to do it again. With you, I hope. How would you like to travel to Rome and see the most important monuments of the Roman Empire with a couple of Roman greatness experts and some fellow Cost of Glory listeners? Eat some good food and, most importantly, learn and practice the ancient art of oratory, that is, rhetoric. Well, we're still updating the website and finalizing the details with the application and the information, but tentatively the dates will be June 30th through July 7th. If you're interested, reach out and tell me so at alex at ancientlifecoach.com, and I'll put you on the list for when the application goes live. I've gotten a lot of inquiries already about this, and I think it's going to fill up pretty quickly. So hope to see you there. Okay, so to begin, let's give some credit and some book recommendations. And I'll put the links to most of these in the show notes in case you want to buy one of these books and support the podcast. So first, the main ancient sources for the life of Crassus. Of course, the number one place to start far and above is Plutarch's Life of Crassus. This is a great place to go if you want to learn more about Crassus. I read the Greek in the Green Lobe editions. It's also got a nice facing English translation. But I do like the Penguin editions for general readers. The translation's a little smoother. If you do read Plutarch, you'll get a chance to see what I was working with. And often people report back to me that they're surprised to find out how much I add or modify Plutarch while still keeping to the spirit and keeping in pretty much all the best parts, as well as other good stuff that you won't find in Plutarch. That's my goal. 
and a few other important Plutarch lives that are worth reading, which I drew on in making the life of Crassus and we'll get to soon, in our own course in the Cost of Glory, are the lives of Cicero, Caesar, Pompey, and Cato. Other important ancient sources are the Roman historian Cassius Dio, who is a Greek from the 3rd century AD. There's also Appian's Roman Civil War for a few key episodes like Spartacus. For Crassus' involvement with Catiline, see Sallust's War with Catiline. And really, Sallust is the most readable of those that bunch, and it's the only one that I'd strongly recommend reading on its own of all of those, unless you really want to dig deep. Another ancient source that's very important is Cicero's letters, and he even has a letter to Crassus. And I used for Cicero's letters the complete set in the Loeb edition, the red one, in the Latin by Shackleton Bailey. Letters are, in my view, some of the most interesting things to read from all of antiquity, but they're also kind of hard to get your head around without a lot of context and homework, so that's up to you. Also, the quote in Italian from the beginning of Crassus III was from Dante's Divine Comedy from the Purgatorio, Canto 20. Of modern, popular, and semi-popular books, I like Tom Holland's Rubicon on the period as a whole. Barry Strauss's book on Spartacus is excellent and very detailed. I got a lot of insights on Roman political dynamics from my friend, Professor Edward Watts's book, Mortal Republic. For the Battle of Cari in particular, and for the entire Parthian campaign and its historical background and its aftermath, Gareth Sampson's book, The Defeat of Rome, is by far the best thing I've found. It's very accessible and uh, highly recommend that. I also enjoyed Peter Stothard's recent book on Crassus, The First Tycoon. Countless are the scholarly works that are relevant to Crassus. Eric Gruen's Last Generation of the Roman Republic is a great source on this period and has a lot of really interesting insights on Crassus that I used. Also, I used Ward's scholarly biography extensively. It's called Crassus and the Late Roman Republic. And there was also an important article by Elizabeth Rawson on the sons of Crassus that I found really illuminating. So hats off to our hardworking sources. Now, a couple more lessons that I took from Crassus. Some of this will be sort of reiteration, but, but there's some new stuff here. So first, on wealth. People often attribute their success to a certain kind of hard work by iteration or consistency. You know, showing up every day and doing the same thing, mastering the boring basics. And there was certainly an aspect of that to Crassus's career and his wealth building, but that's not really the secret to Crassus's wealth by any means. It's not how he built the base of it. Crassus instead took advantage of opportunities. It's the old Peter Drucker saying, you know, in business, results are gained not by solving problems, but by exploiting opportunities. Crassus obviously knew how to solve problems too, but, you know, opportunities were where he made his money. There were the proscriptions of Sulla. There were the occasional fires raging through the city that would help him to buy up apartment blocks cheap. He was always looking for opportunities. But remember, he also positioned himself to take unfair advantage of those opportunities earlier on. First, he made himself extremely useful to the most important man in Rome, Sulla. No amount of iterating on, say, buying rental properties or dollar cost averaging into the 
S&P 500 index fund, that can't compare to the opportunities that you're going to get from becoming, say, the trusted lieutenant of a mega billionaire or a leader of your country. So that's one idea for how to decide where to work hard and where to show your competence and consistency. And of course, Crassus also had the equivalent of his own construction company of slaves so that he could make those apartment block purchases make sense. That is, he invested a lot of effort in cultivating talent, which you also see with all those stylish young men around him. He identified talent and he rewarded it and trained it where he could, and he had a reputation for doing that. So if you want to be like Crassus, I think you're going to subscribe to the old your network is your net worth principle. But also, Crassus obviously thought a lot about asset allocation. Like, how do you want to hold your wealth? In farmlands, in shipping, mining, class A luxury real estate, etc.? And I wish we had the balance sheets and income statements of his financial empire, but one thing you know you'd see a lot of is ready cash. And this is something that the traditional Roman thing of investing in wide family agricultural estates, it's just not going to cut it if you want ready cash. Even that staunch defender of tradition, Cato the Elder, recognized, later in his life at least, that the margins on agricultural land really suck. So he invested in tar pits and shipping and all sorts of things. So maybe it's good to have that steady, low-risk, slow-income-producing asset, set of assets in your portfolio, backing up your basic expenses in life, your safety net. But then if you want to do something really ambitious and really creative, you're probably going to want some liquidity. Crassus obviously needed that liquidity to be able to lend money, which, as we saw, was key to his political success. So, make your own liquidity or make friends with someone like Crassus. And I think you can see Crassus's expedition of the Parthians that ended in failure as kind of being motivated and coming from the same place that so many of his successes did, too. He saw a rare opportunity and he pounced on it. And if it's right, as I think it is, that his main motivation in that expedition was giving his son an opportunity to shine, Publius, it's a little more understandable that he would take such a big risk when he'd been so calculating and risk-mitigating for the rest of his career. But even so, it doesn't absolve him from the sober judgment of history. That is, Crassus underestimated his opponent. and This time, he didn't do enough homework. He was thinking that the Parthians were going to be like the weak Armenians that Lucullus easily defeated in the previous decade. He was thinking they'd be like all the other eastern kings Roman commanders like Pompey had intimidated or stomped. But then, Serena overwhelmed him with millions of arrows. I mean, think about it. A thousand camels? How many arrows can a single camel hold? A thousand? Two thousand? Millions of arrows, realistically. And this is unprecedented, you might say. But a general's job, any serious leader's job in human affairs, is to be prepared for the unprecedented. Surely Crassus should have waited a few days or weeks, done some research after he crossed the Euphrates. The element of initiative and surprise are great, as Caesar knew, but they work best when you are already in full understanding of the terrain, when you've done your thorough research on your opponent. Crassus clearly hadn't. Quickness 
is no substitute for preparation. Preparation is the foundation of decisive confidence. And for his haste, Crassus lost perhaps the most precious thing to him, not his own life, but that of his son, Publius. But let's talk a little bit about the aftermath, because fortunately for Crassus, his other son, Marcus, survived, and he had a happy and successful career. Marcus stayed loyal to Caesar, of course, in the Civil War. He presumably inherited his late father's entire fortune. And in fact, Crassus's grandson by Marcus, who was also named Marcus Licinius Crassus, well, that boy ended up being a friend of the emperor Augustus, and he served as a consul under Augustus, Rome's first emperor. And as far as we can tell, both he and his father, Crassus's son and grandson, they died in peace. You can see the tomb today that he built for his mother, Caecilia Metella, the daughter of one of the great Metelli, outside Rome on the Via Appia. And after the victory of Cari, interestingly, the Parthians were strangely unable to follow it up with any serious territorial gains against the Romans, fortunately for Rome. That's to a large extent because the king of Parthia, Orodes, got jealous of Serena's success and he found some petty excuse to have the man executed, which is pretty incredible, but it's one more example of the power and the danger of envy, which is the evil twin of zeal. And so, you know, killing Serena, this meant that the Parthians sent in the B team, really, to stir up trouble in Roman Syria. You know, they were trying to start a revolt against Rome, and it really didn't go well. Read Samson's account of it if you want to find out more. But we should give some credits to the young Cassius Longinus, the future assassin of Julius Caesar. You'll remember he was a quester in Crassus's army. And Cassius, after the disaster at Cari, he was the most senior officer left in the province of Syria. And after the battle, he managed Rome's successful defense of the province against the Parthians. And this was kind of when Cassius stepped onto the stage and made his name in Roman politics. It was impressive. So... Crassus had as his protégés both Julius Caesar and the leader of the conspiracy to murder Julius Caesar. Well, another interesting twist to the story. Shortly before the Battle of Cari, the wife of Crassus's great rival, Pompey, and this woman was also the daughter of Julius Caesar, you'll remember, her name was Julia, well, she died in childbirth. And then when Crassus died a couple of months later, it meant that there was basically no buffer between these two greatest men, the two greatest egos in Rome, and they soon found themselves fighting a great civil war, which we'll cover in the life of Pompey soon. But Julia's death also left Pompey a bachelor, and he chose to marry, of all people, the young widow of young Publius Crassus. Cornelia Metella was her name. I mean, what a strange turn of events, and she was with Pompey until his last days. Probably, though, the strangest turn of events after the Battle of Cari is a hypothesis devised by a certain British Sinologist, that is a scholar of China. His name was Homer Dubbs, which is a great name. Okay, so what happened to all the Roman soldiers that were captured during the Cari campaign? There could have been as many as 10,000 of them. There's a famous ode of Horace, the poet, in the time of Augustus, and he was you know, wondering in the 
course of this poem, what, what happened to these men that were lost at the Battle of Karai? And so I'm going to give you a quote from Odes 3-5 here. This is Horace. Did Crassus's soldiers live in base wedlock with barbarian wives and grow old in the service of enemies whose daughters they wedded? Alas, our sunken senate and our altered ways. Marcian and Apulian, submissive to a Parthian king, forgetful of their sacred shields and of the Roman name, the toga and eternal Vesta, while Jupiter's city of Rome sat safe. And I'll read the Latin for you here so you know what it sounds like. Miles necrasi conjuge barbara turpis maritus vixit et hostium procuri inversique mores consenuit soceror in armis. Sub rege medo marsus et apulus ancilior et nominis et togae oblitus aeternae que vestae incolumi jovet urbe Roma. So wondered Horace. Well, in fact, if only he had known. So there's a vague passing reference in a later source that claims that King Orodes of Parthia did have these men repatriated to the completely opposite end of his vast empire, to Merv, which is in modern-day Turkmenistan. In those days, it was known as Margiana. That's where the flashing Margianian steel came from. And... There's another odd reference in an ancient Chinese source about some strange troops fighting. This is in 36 BC, so 17 years after Karai. And these troops were fighting under a certain king of the Huns, whose name contains no vowels, and so I won't try to pronounce it. But these troops were sieging a city, and they used a certain fish scale formation. That's what the source calls it, a fish scale formation during the siege to protect their heads from missiles. Well, this fish-scale formation, it seems like it could be the famous testudo, the tortoise. This is this formation that the Romans have, the interlocking shields over their heads, which the troops would know from their basic training. And they would have used it somewhat in vain at the Battle of Cari against those great arrow showers. But anyway, it's possible that Crassus's men went on to find glory, or at least fortune and adventure in a very strange land in their later years. That's what Homer Dubbs thought, and no less a scholar than the great classicist William Tarn thought it was plausible too. And you know what? There are people in the far western city in China of Li Qian, or Li Chen, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, L-I-Q-I-A-N, who claim to be descendants of those Romans now. And they've had some DNA testing done, and they think that the DNA evidence backs them up. Well, who knows? But I choose to believe that those brave soldiers of Crassus continued to fight on under a different master and bring honor all the same to the faraway name of Rome, even though in their hearts they knew that neither they nor their children would ever see her again. Let's leave it there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this series, leave us a review, sign up for our email list at ancientlifecoach.com, or write to me at alex at ancientlifecoach.com. Let me know what you think and what you like and want more of. I'd love to hear from you. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.